Here at Country Roads magazine for 40 years, with curiosity as our guide, we've been wandering the back roads of Mississippi and Louisiana, discovering and sharing Southern culture's most compelling stories. It's a chance to listen closer and discover more. And maybe laugh a little too. I'm James Fox-Smith, publisher. And I'm Jordan LaHaye-Fontenot, managing editor. And I'm Alexandra Kennan, arts and entertainment editor. And this is Detours, a new podcast from your friends at Country Roads Magazine. Hello and welcome to Detours, a podcast about the culture of Louisiana and Mississippi from the people who publish Country Roads magazine. I'm James Fox-Smith, publisher, and today we're taking a deep dive into the life of one of New Orleans' most iconic literary figures, the playwright Tennessee Williams, and his relationship with the city that he thought of as his spiritual home. With me to do that is my colleague and St. Francisville homegirl and longtime New Orleans resident, Country Roads arts and entertainment editor, Alexandra Cannon. In addition to that, Alex is also an accomplished thespian and a New Orleans tour guide, experiences that make her thoroughly qualified to have written the feature story, Tennessee in New Orleans, which appeared in the Country Roads May 2022 edition. Alex is here today to talk about a subject close to her heart, Tennessee Williams, one of America's most famous playwrights of the 20th century, who wrote classics for the stage like A Streetcar Named Desire, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and The Glass Menagerie. Alex, if I'm not mistaken, you have a bit of history with the Williams, don't you? Can you tell me a little about your background with him? Yes, indeed. And very glad to be here and have an excuse to gush about Tennessee Williams always. Um, Honestly, my first time encountering Tennessee Williams, I was a freshman in high school and I was doing a scene study. This was my very first acting class. I'd done some community theater in middle school, but this was my first time looking for a scene for myself and my scene partner. And I'm doing the scene with, with a girl who is now my very best friend, Paige. But at the time... I wasn't very well-versed in theater. I just went to Barnes & Noble, and I looked at the big section of plays, and I just started pulling them down and flipping through them, looking for a scene for two women. And I pulled down A Streetcar Named Desire, which, of course, I'd heard of but had never read. I hadn't even seen the Vivian Lee movie. And I start flipping through it, you know, just looking for two women talking back and forth for a while. And I stumbled across what I now know is one of the most iconic scenes for two women in all of American theater, which is that scene when Blanche first arrives in New Orleans. And she greets Stella, Stella, Stella for star, her her little sister, at Stanley's apartment that they share there. Um, And it's this really like emotional, beautiful scene of of these two sisters um, sort of. Having this moment where they, they see each other for the first time in a very long time. And also this very kind of dark and troubled scene where, where um, there's some tension sort of stretched about this family trauma that they both share, which is all very Tennessee Williams. And of course, I was just immediately captivated. Um, my friend Paige and I had no business performing that scene as 14-year-old <laughs> girls. I mean, certainly um, not really emotional depth that we had much of a grasp on at that point, but we had fun with it. That's for sure. Well, you know, see, what's so interesting about that is you did that, yes, as a 14-year-old, 
which is probably the time a lot of us first have our introduction to Tennessee Williams as his theatre. Sure. And so I probably was introduced to A Streetcar Named Desire at almost the same age because I might have been 15 years old where we would, our drama class at my high school in Australia was taken to the Melbourne Theatre Company to see a production of Streetcar Named Desire wow. put on by the MTC. Again, we sat in the dark and I watched this play, but with no visual impression or notion of Louisiana or of New Orleans or any of the, uh, any of the scene building that you, as somebody who was born and raised in Louisiana, already were more qualified to understand the backdrop and the setting in which that took place. Because I was just a little suburban boy in a, in a city on the other side of the world listening to this, but it does pay some credit to the impact that Williams has had, that his plays are, st are being taught to 15-year-old kids on the other side of the world. And even if they have no idea about the setting or the scene, those character studies and those stories still resonate because I still remember that like it was yesterday. Wow, that is yeah. incredible. And what a testament just to how far internationally reaching right. Williams is and, and his work is to this day, especially Streetcar, that seminal work. Um but I mean, like you said, you were. I was just completely captivated by it, right? So then I proceeded to, of course, read all of Streetcar and then anything else I could get my hands on. And that sort of started my sort of lifelong love and fascination for him as a playwright. Right. Um, so it was very kind of serendipitous that when I graduated from college with my little theater journalism degree uh -huh. and I'm throwing my resume and audition at any theater company that, that'll take it, one of my very first professional theater jobs out of college was working at the Contemporary Arts Center as production stage manager of a very rarely produced Tennessee Williams play called The Mutilated. And The Mutilated was performed once um, when, when Williams first wrote it back in the 1960s. In 1966, it first premiered. And it was billed as slapstick tragedy at wow, that point I in time. I don't think I know what slapstick tragedy pay. That I'm not even sure what the reference means. So <laughs> enlighten me. We'll leave it to Williams to, to write something so both dark and also bizarrely funny to, to qualify as that. Um, and, and it really does kind of suit the play in a way. I mean, it is a very, a very sad play about this um, sort of lonely older woman who's a breast cancer survivor and this kind of on-again, off-again friendship that she has with a prostitute in New Orleans named Celeste. And uh, it takes place on Christmas Eve, and it's these two women kind, kind of bickering and going about their lives. But it's incredible how much of William's life in New Orleans, looking back at that play, makes its way into the script for The Mutilated. It is set in New Orleans. Um, the main character, Trinket, um, who was played by Mink Stoll in our production, actually, from the Roger Waters films. That was fun no to get way. to work with her. You're me. Yeah, yeah, I got to pick her up at the airport. A lovely lady, quite a character, as you'd imagine. Um, anyway, um, so during the course of that production, um, she references Commander's Palace. Trinket at one point tries to seduce a sailor from the Navy who's in town. And we see a lot of these threads in Tennessee Williams' actual life and memoirs, too, which we'll dive into a little bit. So that was my first time working on one of his productions professionally. Again, very rarely produced, so it was really an honor to, to get to be involved in that process at all. That one was directed by Cosmin Shivu, who is a Romanian director, who is one of the only directors to ever touch that script. He first... Um, premiered it after the 1966 premiere in 2013 in New York, then brought it down here to New Orleans. Um, and then the very next year, so that was the year I graduated in 2015, very year after that, the Tennessee Williams Theatre Company of New Orleans was asked to world premiere 
a couple of Tennessee Williams one acts. Now, I know that sounds bizarre, and James, you're looking a little quizzical right now. You wouldn't think that there were any Tennessee Williams scripts left to world premiere in the 2000s. And yet, weird tales, right? And yet, weird tales. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So... These scripts were written in the 1980s. Um, well, particularly Ivan's Widow was written in 1982, which was towards the end of William's life. Yeah. Um, and admittedly, as much as I love Williams and his work, and I do think the script is so important in so many ways, I can see why it took them 40 years to world premiere the script. Not easy stuff to, to bring to the stage, right? Certainly not, yeah. And um, and our reviewer, while he was very diplomatic, kind of acknowledged that, that these are some very difficult scripts to work with. Um, I played a character who was a young widow who was going to therapy following the unexpected death of her husband, and um, it, it sort of rolls out as this kind of tense play um, where there's a lot of kind of emotional and sexual manipulation between her and this therapist. Um, Really, again, a very bizarre, dark show. But Williams, as you know, has such a grasp on writing these really complex female characters. Mm -hmm. And you do, I think, see so much of his own life in in those scripts. Um, So that was really an honor. And I mean, my name's in the anthology as like one of the premiering actors in that production. That was so, so cool to be involved uh, in at all. Um, And that was a production that took place again in 2016 for the Tennessee Williams and New Orleans Literary Festival that included Ivan's Widow. Um, along with two other other one acts. Um, and among them was another one that I was in called Strange Play. That was one that he wrote earlier in his life when he was in his 20s. Um, and then another Steps They Must Be Gentle that had been premiered once before. So we kind of wrapped those in, into one production. So I um, I had kind of a, a little year of Tennessee Williams. Yeah, you really did. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like not only you're eminently qualified, not only as a, a performer who has, who has acted in these productions, lived in the shadow of Williams's own experience and life in New Orleans. Uh, and also, of course, you've, um, you've, uh, you've given and led tours of the city uh, uh, kind of in, the, in that sort of footsteps, in the backdrop against which he set his work. So, I mean, when the time came for us, when we wanted to tell that story in Country Roads, tell a little bit about Williams's relationship with the city of New Orleans and the way in which it animated his work and gave him the subject matter that built brought his characters to life i'm i know that this was a, a this was a, a like a passion project for you to write that piece and explore it and that's what we want to do today is really dive into that story and have an opportunity to you know i want to ask you a little bit about the experience of building that building that piece for the magazine and writing it out and really also revealing some of the ways in which Williams left his mark on the city in ways that you can still see so much, not only in the theater, but also in the city today. Oh, absolutely. He really was so infatuated with, with New Orleans, and, and New Orleans is still very much infatuated with him. Yeah. That's so clear. And I'm excited to have an excuse to sit down and, and talk about it. That's well, something I love about Country Roads is that we sometimes get to, to explore into these deeper dives and into things that pique our interest, and this was definitely one of those for me. All right. Well, let's dive into it. Well, so let's start out by why don't you tell us how you approached this story? Where did you begin? Who and what were your sources? 
Absolutely. So um, it really all started with this really fantastic exhibition that was hosted by the Historic New Orleans Collection last year in 2022. And they hosted that exhibition, which was titled Backstage at a Streetcar Named Desire, um, in time for the 75th anniversary of the premiere of that play. And the exhibition basically chronicled William's life in New Orleans, the ways that his lived experience there impacted his work. Um, and we know, I mean, he writes these really fascinating and complex characters. Yeah. I think that's one of his, his greatest strengths as a playwright. And that's because he's a fascinating and complex character himself. Um, so He was it, writing his life. He was writing his life in the world that was around him. Absolutely. Yeah, you can really, really see that come through. So um, it was really fun to get to dive into learning more about what that life was like and, and how it impacted his plays, but also how it shaped who he was as a person. Sure. Um, so as for sources, we were incredibly lucky that Williams himself was a very enthusiastic, if not necessarily the most thorough and organized documentarian of his own life. Um, so what I mean by that is that we have a treasure trove. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, of journal entries, um, memoirs, letters that he wrote to his family, his agent, his friends. I mean, he was really an avid writer and not just as a playwright. He he documented everything. Um, and I, I personally think that it's really interesting to kind of look through this stuff. And I included a variety, particularly for this story. I referenced his first volume of letters because that's when we see a lot of his time in New Orleans, as well as his journals and his memoirs, because I love that kind of more personal look that those give, because it is interesting to note the different voices and kind of styles of writing that he has when he's writing to different audiences. Sure. For example, um, you know, he's, he's a lot more family friendly and kind of puts on this persona of like the genteel Southern gentleman when he's writing to his mama. But when he's, you know, writing to his buddy Paul Bigelow or he's writing in his personal journal, that's when we really see a little bit more of his kind of uh, gritty proclivities and things like that. Interesting, isn't it? Like, I, I guess I might say my texts to my mother or father probably read a little differently from the ones to my college friends as well. So <laughs> is there any surprise? There? Don't all of ours. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You can't blame the guy. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can tell he's a playwright. He's always keeping his audience in mind, to say the least. And uh, and I especially was lucky in that these very talented scholars at the Historic New Orleans Collection had already done so much wonderful research and thorough research to curate that exhibition. Okay, now when was that exhibition mounted? When was it on stage? When was it on view? It was in like mid-2022, correct? Yeah. So it was um, – in 2022 was that 75th anniversary um, and if I recall, it opened, I think, a couple of months into the year in the 2022. The 75th anniversary mm -hmm. of the street of the of the first production of Streetcar Named Desire. Yes, indeed. Yep. Yeah, of that of that Broadway premiere, actually. Um, so it, it ran for, for quite quite a while into the summer of 2022 and really was such a thorough look. And I have I have to give major props, especially to um, senior curator at the HNOC, uh, Mark Cave, mm -hmm. who was kind enough to speak with me for this piece and provided a lot of really great insight, not only from his research, but just sort of his, his own thoughts about Williams and his life and, and what might have been going through his head at these points in time. And um, Dylan Jordan was also massively helpful. He is an interpretation assistant at the HNOC, um, but he is the one who curated a French Quarter walking tour. Oh, no kidding. Uh, yeah, after my own heart, given, given the, the walking tours out there. But um, but he did want to accompany the exhibition that particularly focused on William's life in the quarter and brought you to, to a lot of these spots that were really important to Williams, where he lived or where he frequented. Um, and both of those gentlemen were so helpful um, in, in you know, providing me information and sitting down and speaking 
working with me and really helping me hone in on what was the most impactful to Williams when he was in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And um, and I do feel like I need to give a mention to Kenneth Holditch, who he just passed away in December of 2022, pretty recently. But he is and was one of the preeminent scholars on Tennessee Williams in New Orleans or anywhere. Got it. Um, and I, I do believe a lot of his research went into that exhibition as well, some, some of his writings on Williams and his scholarship. And he also is one of the individuals who helped found that Tennessee Williams and New Orleans Literary Festival that we love so much, as well as other festivals by the same name in Clarksdale, Mississippi, as well as Williams' hometown of Columbus, Mississippi. Right, because Williams' hometown was Columbus, wasn't it? He He's always been associated with New Orleans, but that is not where he started his life. And he really, well, he was in his 20s before he first set foot in the city. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that correct? No. Uh, so what was his upbringing like? Talk to us about that and how did it shape him prior to his first arrival in New Orleans? Sure. So essentially, um, he, he is born, as you said, in Columbus, Mississippi. Um, and pretty shortly after he's born, his grandfather gets assigned um, to be the priest of an Episcopalian parish in Clarksdale, Mississippi. So the family heads to Clarksdale okay. and they live in the rectory for his, his grandfather's church. And um, you can imagine that neither of these Mississippi towns suited Tennessee quite as well as New Orleans eventually did. Um, it seems pretty clear. You know, um, he describes his upbringing um, as pretty strict and withholding were the words mm-hmm. that he chose. Um, and, and it sounds like he led a fairly conventional childhood overall. He was born in 1911. Of course, he wasn't born as Tennessee. Who he- is? Right. Yeah, right. I know. Too good of a name. That was actually I found out a nickname that his college roommate gave him much later because his dad had some background in Tennessee. And if I'm not mistaken, his dad had even run for office in Tennessee at one point. And so because Tennessee showed up at college with the Southern drawl and this Tennessee connection, his roommate started calling him that. But he's born Thomas Lanier Williams. Um, Tom is what he goes by growing up. Um, Wouldn't become Tennessee until much later in the early uh, 1940s as his pseudonym, though, as I said, he had that college roommate who kind of jokingly called him that sooner. Uh Um, And while we gauge that his needs were probably met, he didn't seem to have the most emotionally fulfilling or warm or loving childhood. In fact, we do know that that his father was somewhat of an angry alcoholic because we know his mother eventually separated from him for those reasons, though they never finalized the divorce. Um, Tom was a middle child. Uh-huh. He had a younger brother named Walter Dakin, who um, he seems to be fond of, but does speak on like he might have a little resentment that Walter kind of is a little more socially acceptable to the family than the Tennessee ever was. Um, and, and so you see that kind of come out in his letters sometimes. He also has an older sister named Rose. Tell us about Rose. Oh, Rose. What... What a, a tragic figure she is. So she's really one of one of um, Williams's closest childhood friends. They were said to be very close growing up. Um, but in, in 1943, she underwent a frontal lobe lobotomy to oh treat schizophrenia. Um, and, and of course, you know, at that point in the 1940s, mental illness for women was painted with a pretty broad brush. So we think it might have been schizophrenia. It could, of course, just been... Any number of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Manic depression it could be bipolar d- disorder. A lot of things that that were was she had she been born in a different era would have been treated in a very different way. 
Exactly. Yeah. So it really is is tragic. Um, and it's said that Williams really obsessed over this event. She underwent the lobotomy in 1943, and and she's essentially catatonic after that. I mean, mm. she spends the rest of her life in a home. And a lot of Williams' friends and people who were close to him said that he never really got over that. Um, that was something that he would bring up throughout his life. And and you can tell he really – I'm not sure if he personally felt accountable because he wasn't involved in that decision. But but it, it certainly seemed to eat at him based on the way that, that he referenced it. Well, Rose say. finds her way into his characters and his in the way he describes people, correct? Tell us yes. about that. Yeah, and so that's – that's something, of course, that's, that's really great about Tennessee Williams is you see so much of, of his actual life in his plays. And, and Rose is definitely one of those figures. Um, she became the primary basis for the character Laura mm. in The Glass Menagerie. Um, her suitor calls her Blue Roses um, because he he sort of mishears her when she says she has pleurosis. Uh-huh. Um, but uh-huh. you can see that nickname, Blue Roses, the suitor gives her, I think might be a little tip of the hat back to his sister Rose. Um and we also see moments of Rose in, in other characters of his, mm-hmm. Blanche in Streetcar Named Desire, Catherine and Suddenly Last Summer, who's very troubled and eventually does undergo a lobotomy, um, and, and so many other of his really troubled female figures. I think in that Ivan's Widow character as well, that, that you do see some of this, this troubled young woman sure. that he related to through his sister coming out. Now, he wasn't much of a student, was he? <laughs> No, he's not, which which I find is is a little validating. You know, I mean, I did pretty well in school, but but makes you know the the AB average feel oh. feel a little better looking back at Tennessee's record. Or C and D, I can speak from personal experience. <laughs> well, thankfully, we're not here to hash out our own transcripts, so we'll focus on on Williams for for now. Um, but he yeah, he spent most of his twenties before he came to New Orleans in and out of different university programs. Um, he took some journalism classes at the University of Columbia, Missouri. For a little mm-hmm. while, but then he dropped out and got a nine to five job at the International Shoe Company factory, where his mother said that he would work nine to five and then he would go home, um, where where he was living with her at that time. And she said that he would basically just drink black coffee and smoke cigarettes, and she would find him the next morning still fully clothed, sprawled across the bed because he'd been up writing all, all night. night. So he was still getting some writing in at that point in time, though he he takes a little while, you know, to to work this day job. Um, and uh, and he's submitting, you know, short stories and plays to different competitions at that point. Mm-hmm. But then eventually he enrolls for a stint at the Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Before he drops out there, too, oh. um, which allegedly the reason that he dropped out was because he didn't win their poetry prize. Goodness. And he, uh, he you know, wasn't too happy with that. So it seems like he has a bit of a petty streak in him. We could gauge from from this as well as some of his moments in his journals and letters, uh, which is kind of funny. But What comes next? Yeah. So then, finally, goes to the University of Iowa. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's his final attempt where he does. Eventually graduate with a bachelor's degree in English. All right, we got there in the end. Yeah, though apparently he still failed technical theater, which I think is kind of funny for a playwright. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, December of that very same year after he graduates, finally, that is when at age 27, he finally makes it down to New Orleans for the first time, just in time to celebrate the new year. What a time to arrive. So, what do we know about his initial impression? Well, yeah, the, and that... Thankfully, again, we have a lot of documentation of this. And and as you know, you know, New Orleans is one of those places that people always say 
you either get it or you don't right. on a first visit. Sure. You know, you either go and you immediately fall in love with the people and the culture and the food and the architecture. And, you know, that makes the infrastructural mess and the rampant alcoholism and the heat and all of these other issues that we face down in New Orleans. That makes that worth it. You know, you take the good with the bad. That's how I've always felt about it. I, I completely love it. Yeah. But there's other people who just don't get it, you know, and I've had these folks on my tours when, when I was giving tours as a tour guide. And they come and they don't really ever quite get why you would trade the alcoholism and the heat and the infrastructure for the food and the culture and all the other wonderful things. And then they, they just go back to Dallas and that's the end of that. <laughs> yep. um, but Tennessee was one of those people who from the moment he arrived in New Orleans, he Got it. Yeah. And not only did he get it, but he really felt like he fit in there for, for one of the first times in his life. And, and he writes about that in his journal. Here surely is the place that I was made for, if any place in this funny old world. And I think that there's so much truth to the way he phrases that, if any place, because it wasn't his nature to not linger in one place for too long. This is something I talked about with um, Mark Cave and Dylan Jordan at the HNOC. He was a bit transient by nature. You know, he didn't like to be in one place too long before he wanted to move on to the next place, you know, for the, the next experience or whatever he sought. Right. Um, but New Orleans, more than anywhere else, he really felt had a quality of home because it suited him so well. So why do you think that is? Why do you think that Tennessee felt so at home in New Orleans? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I've thought a lot about that one. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think I think Mark Cave, that senior curator who put together that exhibition, had a really insightful remark about that. He felt free to be himself. Yeah. And I think that was really hard for him, particularly during that 38, 39 period. You know, I think as the years went on and he sort of embraced his own proclivities and, and his lifestyle, it became easier. But I think uh, New Orleans was, you know, an agent that helped him um, be okay with who he was. Um, yeah and feel okay with who he was. Um, and also it's just, you know, such a dense area um, where you're interacting with people, um, all sorts of people. And I think that that was inspiring to him. Um, it's like, I, I lived in the quarter before and it's sort of like being in this sort of social pinball machine. Um, <laughs> and you just kind of bounce from conversation to conversation and person to person. And I think that was very, um, was very good fuel for his writing. Um, and, yeah. and I just love the way Cave puts that, that it's like a social pinball machine. Because as someone who has worked down there um, on a daily basis when I was giving tours, that is so accurate. Accurate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I'm sure you've experienced that as well. You just really never know what you're going to get. And, and very often the whole neighborhood just feels like it's on one. Um, but, but he does say, you know, as well, that Tennessee, he frequented a lot of bars. And I think that also provided a lot of inspiration for his writing. Another great place for making uh, conversations and, and discovering different points of view and, and ways of approaching life, too. Absolutely. A difference, a nice way to put that, and especially knowing, you know, uh, Williams's proclivity for writing these kind of uh, seedier at times characters, you know, in this kind of underbelly world that, that he likes to, to live in in his plays at points. I, I think that's very telling that he did spend a lot of time hanging out in bars drinking. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and he did 
choose a variety, which I think helped too. So, for example, he was known to hang out at the Carousel Bar at the Hotel Monteleon, which would have had a very, you know, kind of upscale, refined clientele. And that's another thing that makes it tricky to nail down where he was living is he did also like to take their stationery and send letters from the Monteleone. Interesting, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which makes it kind of hard to nail him down. But um, another place he loved to hang out was the much more bohemian and gay-friendly Bourbon House Bar. Now, these days, the Bourbon House Bar is owned by one of the Brennans, and it's a very, very hoity-toity nice establishment. Um, But back then, apparently, it had a bit of a different vibe. And so um, in Cave's words, he says, I think that helped him come to comfort with who he was and also provided constant inspiration. Uh-huh. And and uh-huh. we do know that that point in his late 20s was kind of the first time that Williams embraced who he was as a gay man. Yeah. It said he lost his virginity as probably TMI in New Orleans for the first time on that trip. So it's um he kind of had this rediscovering, this coming into of himself that New Orleans really helped him do. Um and, and we do have a lot of his first impressions of the city, or at least the family-friendly version for his mom, in a letter that he wrote to her on January 2nd. Just now, is a, that 1938, 1939? This was 1939. 1939. So he okay. gets here, I think, December 27th of 1938. Mm-hmm. And then um, by New Year's Day, 1939, he is in love with the place. And then by the 2nd, um, that's when he's writing this letter to his mother, telling her about what he finds here in the city. You want to read us that letter? Oh, sure. Twist Come my on. arm. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> um, and, and I have to say, I just I love this letter because it's very indicative of how little New Orleans has changed. Correct. Uh, that's what I thought <laughs> when I read through it myself. It was the same as like for all of you who know New Orleans who are listening to this, close your eyes and think about the city that you know and you've experienced. Yeah. And you'll recognize a lot of this. That's really? That's why he's a great writer. That's why he's a great playwright. Absolutely. So here's what he says. He says, I'm crazy about the city. I walk continually. There's so much to see. The quarter is really quainter than anything I've seen abroad. In many homes, the original atmosphere is completely preserved. Today, being a holiday, I visited Audubon Park, which is lovelier than I could describe, blooming like summer with palm trees and live oaks garlanded with Spanish moss, beautifully laid out. Also visited the mature dwellers, squatters, along the river, and, for contrast, the fine residential district and the two universities, Loyola and Tulane. The latter appears to be a splendid school. It was closed today, so I'm going to make another visit. The quarter is alive with antique and curio shops where some really artistic stuff is on sale, relics of Creole homes that have gone to the block. I was invited to dinner Sunday by some people who own a large antique store, Their home is a regular treasure chest of precious objects. Food is amazingly cheap. I get breakfast in the French market for a dime. Lunch and dinner amount to about 50 cents at a good cafeteria near Canal Street. And the cooking is the best I've encountered away from home. Raw oysters, 20 cents a dozen. Shrimp, crab, lobster, and all kinds of fish. I have a passion for seafood, which makes their abundance a great joy. The courtyards are full of palms, vines, and flowering poinsettia, many with fountains and wells, and all with grillwork, balconies, and little winding stairs. It is heaven for painters, and you see them working everywhere. Mr. and Mrs. Helder, Alice Lippman's friends, say that I, if I get desperate, I can earn bread as a model, but I trust something better will turn up. Wow, what a, <laughs> what a vivid picture. 
And again, you can recognize so much of that. Not the prices for oysters, maybe, but so much of the rest of that really hasn't changed that much. You can still find it. But it's obviously such a vivid picture. But where, in fact, did he live? Because his circumstances changed a great deal during his years in which he was associated with the city when he went from penniless, struggling artist to a really celebrated playwright, didn't he? So tell us about where he lived when he was here. He was in the quarter and also out of the quarter, wasn't he? Mm-hmm, Let's at talk points. about that. Yeah, no, and and um, he was, as you could imagine, less of an uptown guy, more of a French quarter guy, so especially true. especially at first here. And uh, and I'll even forgive him for his little slight against Loyola when he references Tulane <laughs> as a splendid looking school, but not Loyola's. Yeah, that's mission there. My alma mater, but that's mm-hmm. okay. That's okay. He's he's forgiven for that. But but no, as as you'd guess, the the quarter was really where he felt the most at home. Um, and his first New Orleans apartment was actually in the upper floor of 722 Toulouse Street, okay. which he describes, and I love this description, this spot as a poetic evocation of all the cheap rooming houses in the world, <laughs> which it provides constant inspiration for his New Orleans set plays, especially Vu Carre, which is one of his very early ones. Um, it doesn't come out until 1970, but he writes it a good bit sooner. Uh-huh. Um, but his landlady, when he's living at that Toulouse Street room, Mrs. Anderson, she becomes the harsh landlady character, Mrs. White, in that play Vu Carre. Um, and while living there on Toulouse, uh, he really has quite Quite an experience. He and his landlady, Mrs. Anderson, open a restaurant together called Quarter Eat Shop. Um, and Williams, he describes himself as a waiter and a busboy and the PR guy and everything else. He comes up with the slogan, meals in the quarter for a quarter. So you can see that if he didn't go into writing plays, advertising would have been It was going to be marketing was his backup plan, yeah. Yeah, clearly he did well with that. Um, and... Uh, that only lasted a handful of weeks, you could imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his relationship with the landlady wasn't necessarily on the best terms. Um, and with him, you know, running everything in the restaurant, having no restaurant experience, you can imagine that didn't go the best. Um, but he told his mother at that time, I serve as waiter, cashier, a publicity manager, host. In fact, every possible capacity, including sometimes dishwasher. When not busy in the dining room, I stand on the sidewalk and try to drag people upstairs. It really is a great deal of fun. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you can see at least he's enjoying himself during this period. And, and you see him with all kinds of odd jobs in these early years in New Orleans, just trying to scrounge together whatever money he can. And, um, and in fact, he does reference in his letters to his parents um, that they are sending him money occasionally at this point as well. Um, But allegedly, Mrs. Anderson actually once poured boiling water through the floorboards of that upper apartment because she was upset about the noise the tenants were making throwing a party downstairs. And Williams was actually called into court as a witness to testify. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, this is not a landlady to get on the wrong side of. No, no. Apparently what he said in court to avoid perjuring himself and also to avoid offending the landlady was that he couldn't imagine a lady would ever do such a thing. What? Walking a fine line, that one. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a clever, clever one, you could tell. Um, but, now, but who owns that building today? Mm, so that is the historic New Orleans collection, much to my luck. How convenient. Uh, yeah, so the HNOC has that building. And um, actually, I, I was very fortunate in the Dylan Jordan, um, that interpretation assistant who I talked to, and David Walker, who's also massively helpful um, for, for getting us resources and connecting us with folks over there at the HNOC. See, um, they were kind enough to take me back in the courtyard to actually check it out when I was working on the story. Yeah, I've never been back here. 
and mm-hmm. it really is a classic, iconic French Quarter building. You know, the stuccoed brick and the Spanish courtyard with the little attic window. And I have to say, it, it is pretty neat looking up at that little window on the top floor and just imagining that Tennessee Williams once looked out of that window himself. Probably sat there with a typewriter. Mm. So how long did he stay at that address? So that first stint was only seven weeks. Oh, yeah. And, okay. uh, as, again, he was pretty transient. So yeah. he stayed around uh, long enough to catch some Mardi Gras parades, of which he says, We delayed our departure till mo- Monday to see a little of the Mardi Gras. Two days of it was quite enough. <laughs> it wouldn't be the last person that decided that two days was enough. Exactly. I, I do think a, a lot of New Orleans locals could definitely understand that sentiment to some degree, as, as much as we love it. Um, but then Williams heads out west to California uh-huh. to find work with a saxophone player buddy that he made in New Orleans named Jim Parrott. Um, they, they basically head out there to get uh, work working on a farm. Um, Williams had plans to get work in New Orleans with the WPA Writers Project. Um, this guy, Lyle Saxon, who was kind of a big figure in New Orleans literature at that time and actually wrote a guidebook to New Orleans Sorry, back then right. that was pretty prominent. He was hiring um, WPA writers at that point in time. And Williams seemed to think he'd get work on that project, but he never does. Oh. So I think that's what this is when he leaves with Jim Parrott to get work in California. And, and we see this happen a couple times where he does have to leave for jobs. Um, it's, it's partially because he never did land that WPA. UPA job like he'd hoped. Uh-huh. Yeah. So he's just following the money, basically. He doesn't have anything particular to hold him there. He's looking for new experiences. He doesn't know that California may be another New Orleans, but he gets there and I guess he finds out that it really wasn't. Maybe no. he finds out that there's no place like New Orleans. I, th- I think so, yeah. you know, and, and, and based on how he writes about it and how he kind of gets out of California as soon as he can, both times when he goes for work, um, I, I think do indicate that. But mm-hmm. But I will say it's that stint after his first trip to New Orleans, when he goes back to California, it's in that window after that first trip to New Orleans that he starts going by the name Tennessee. Interesting. So I I do think that maybe New Orleans helped kind of inspire him to step into that pseudonym that he would eventually just so own. But that's when we start seeing him signing his letters, even personal letters. He starts signing Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And um, I think this is kind of a cute thing he does. He occasionally will sign the letter just with the number 10 as as a little short joke for those in the know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I just love that. Okay. So when did he come back to New Orleans? So that was only a couple of years later. Again, he did not stay gone for too long. In 1941, he had a big premiere. So his play Battle of Angels had just opened in Boston and critics hated it. Oh, dear. It was a major flop. Um, So he's at that point, 1941, he's nursing his pride. He's still very poor. And he comes back to the place that he fits in best. But this time when he comes back down to New Orleans, he thinks that the quarter has changed. <laughs> in only two years. It's changed so much. In only two years. It's just kind of funny for, for those of us who live there today who are, who are always kind of grumbling about how, you know, it's constantly oh, changing. Oh, it used to be better. Just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that people in 1941 were saying that about the quarter of 1939. Exactly. And probably the people in 1939 were saying it about the quarter of 1935. I guarantee. Probably yeah. in the 1820s they were saying, right. oh, this isn't anything mm-hmm. like the 1790s French yeah. quarter. So mm-hmm. sort of a perpetual thing. But um, but he writes to his friend Paul Bigelow, who I mentioned. And Paul Bigelow was a kind of confidant and, and um, sort of ongoing pen pal for him for quite some time. Um, and I like those letters because he's very candid with Bigelow, it seems. And, and he kind of uses his humor there. But he tells him, my second New Orleans period is underway. 
The quarter has cleaned up and become smart, respectable, and expensive, so I have located in another part of town. Um, which, again, you see that humor come through, but what yeah. he means then is basically near Lee's circle. Okay. He essentially heads out of the quarter um, into what way back in the day was the American sector. These days we just call the central business district. But he's right around Lee's circle. And he finds that apartment a fantastic spot from which he can seduce sailors. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> because okay. it's got this discreet back door. And so he does write about that and how he really enjoys it for that reason. Mm -hmm. um, again, he's got his proclivities. Uh, but I guess that doesn't last for very long, or at least the landlady doesn't like that, because eventually he writes... To to Bigelow again saying, a misunderstanding about some sailors who come in occasionally to discuss literature with me provoked a tedious little quarrel with the landlady. <laughs> so he gets himself into some trouble on that second trip in New Orleans. He, he departs with his sense of humor intact, for sure. Absolutely. He also buys a bike for 10 bucks on that trip. So again, you know, he's just trying to get around, trying yeah. to find work where he can, seduce sailors where he can. There you go. Can do it faster on a bike. So... <laughs> Okay, is there anything from that period that shows up in his plays? I think so. Okay. So I mentioned that rare play, The Mutilated, that we did. Uh -huh. In that one, Trinket, the main character, she tries to seduce a sailor at one point. I do think that might have some inspiration from this point in his life. Well, New Orleans was, of course, one of the busiest ports um, in the United States at the time. So, yeah. so uh, I mean, that's it's one of the reasons that the city developed the way it is, right? Is 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 it all of the all of the uh, cultural influences from all around the world that a port brings in? Absolutely, it's one of the reasons that jazz music was able to emerge from yeah. there. One of the reasons that we had Storyville, the red light district, and then promptly shut it down in World War One mm -hmm. um, because that was causing problems for the navy, um, and you can see why they sure. were basically going back to the boats useless. Um, so. So, so, yeah, you do see see some of that with the sailors. And also in Streetcar Named Desire, Mitch, that friend of Stanley's, he mentions the New Orleans Athletic Club, which is this like men's only gym that still exists today, okay. right on the edge of the quarter. It's over there, I think, on Rampart Street. And um, Williams wrote to his friend Bigelow telling him that he invested half his check in a membership there. <laughs> Um, and that he has some some pretty funny remarks about kind of this gay Southern society scene that he finds, you know, very active at the New Orleans Athletic Club. Um, and he actually... Uh, he, yeah, he wrote about it, didn't he? Yeah. And, and once again, this was to Bigelow, who he, he really confides in. He says, I got reckless and invested half my check in this rather exclusive club, but it is worth it as there is a marvelous saltwater pool, Turkish baths, etc., and the prettiest Creole bells in town. Okay. And I'm going to interject briefly here. You could probably gather by bells. He does not mean ladies. Um, anyway, he continues to say, I am already well established in their circles. And my particular intimate is a Bordelon, one of the oldest families in the city. Such delicate bells you have never seen, utterly different from the northern species. Everybody is share. I actually pass for butch uh, in comparison and am regarded as an innovation, the outdoor type, and am consequently enjoying a considerable success. Share, I have a room on Royal right opposite the gay bar, the St. James, so I can hover like a bright angel over the troubled waters of homo society. Wow, what a character. Sounds like he was having a fabulous time. <laughs> does. Yeah, he really found his place here. Um, but, but then he leaves again in 1943, that time to go write scripts for MGM out in California. 
which he did not particularly enjoy. Yeah, he liked the stage, didn't he? He wanted the immediacy of the stage. He did. And I think something about kind of the emotional connection you get from live acting on stage, I I think that really lends itself to to his plays as well. Um, But, you know, he goes, he takes the gig, goes out to MGM, does some screenwriting. But what's notable is that summer, one of the scripts he writes and the script he wrote for the screen was called The Gentleman Caller. Caller. Well, The Gentleman Caller would eventually become the stage play The Glass Menagerie. Well, there you go. And then he's off to the races, isn't he? Because Glass Menagerie was his first real hit, correct? It was, yes. Um, So when it premiered in 1945 in New York, it was a massive success. And this was really the first time that Williams gets and experiences this kind of success in a way that is is really life-changing. Um, so naturally, he celebrates that success the same way he responded to the failure when Battle of Angels opened and was a flop. He responds to the success exactly the same by returning to his spiritual home of New Orleans. New Orleans. Right, there you go. All right, so this time I'm guessing he comes back. His circumstances are a little different. Perhaps he chooses to live a little differently too. Where does he live in yeah. 1945? Oh, great question because you're exactly right that he is doing a lot better financially this time for the first time in his life. Um, he's living pretty high on the hog for the first time ever. Um, no longer is he just taking on jobs and accepting cash from his parents, but um, but he has finally made it. Um, and And man, when he comes back to New Orleans – he has some really ugly thoughts about New York City. I mean, you mentioned he didn't like California. We can tell he doesn't love California. He seems to dislike New York even worse. And wow. having this big success there doesn't seem to improve that for him. Um, he actually wrote to his agent, Aubrey Wood, who was his longtime agent. And we've got a lot of great letters to her as well. Um, but he wrote saying, Broadway seems like some revolting sickness. And I won't even finish the quote because it's, it's honestly really quite nasty. Um, but but it is in, in the story. If you go look up the story online, um, which, which we'll put in the show notes for this. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's just an incredible contrast to his love affair with New Orleans, looking at the way he writes about Broadway um, to Aubrey Wood at the beginning of 1946. Um, and so I, I do want to read sort of a, a little segment of yeah, one of his letters to Wood. Of what of the way he's reflecting on his environment based on the experiences he's had since. Right. Because really, I, I can't possibly paraphrase this in a way that can even light a candle to the way that he describes this stuff. But but I do have to give a disclaimer here. He does use um, some, some pretty dated racial language that we would not have chosen, just a heads up. Um, but this is, this is Williams writing to his agent in 1946. He says, If you can imagine how a cat would feel in a cream puff factory, you can imagine my joy at being back in the quarter. It was always my particular milieu. Is that how you pronounce that? Milieu. Milieu. Thank you, James. I've always wondered. It's when I read a lot, but don't say a lot. I'm just going to say milieu. And if if we've got that wrong, somebody, please call in and tell us. Yeah, shoot us an email, please. Um, But anyway, um, it was always my particular milieu, but I was never here before with money. Now I can afford a place where the windows are all doors 12 feet high with shutters and a balcony looking out on the Negro convent in the back of the cathedral. I never put on a shirt, just a leather jacket. I go unshaven for days and nobody says, look at that bum. They say, that is the fellow who wrote The Glass Menagerie. He's explaining that he lives at this time um, on Orleans Avenue, which is near St. Louis Cathedral and also near the uh, Sisters of the Holy Family Convent, which, of course, was the first convent for African-American women in the United States that was founded by Henriette DeLille. Right, um, right. 
which is today the Bourbon Orleans Hotel. But that location was where he started writing Poker Night, Mm -hmm. a play that would eventually become A Streetcar Named Desire. Wow, you can imagine. How I wonder how it goes from the phrase Poker Night to A Streetcar Named Desire. I have to wonder whether the play would have been quite as successful in the long term had it ended up remaining called Poker Night. Uh, it's certainly not as grabbing now, is it? No, but anyway, regardless, it must have been a richly inspirational spot for a playwright to find himself. Oh, it really sounds like it was. Um, and he mentions he could hear those bells from St. Louis Cathedral, which, of course, make their way into the play in moments like Blanche's line. Those cathedral bells, they're the only quick clean thing in the quarter. What a line. What else from that life then worked its way into Streetcar? Um, Yeah, so one of the more interesting things that I learned while writing this piece, and I knew about this kind of vaguely, but Mm -hmm. but really kind of did some more research, was that there used to be really a thriving Chinatown in the heart of the French Quarter at that point in time. Yeah, um, it's it's just it's so interesting to think about what that must have been like. And I didn't realize how long that lasted and, and that there were still kind of little things you can look to to see evidence that it was there until Dylan Jordan, who curated that tour, pointed out to me that you can actually still see Chinese characters on one of the buildings in the 600 block of Bourbon Street that that translate apparently to Chinese Merchants Association. Um, But there really was a thriving Chinese neighborhood down there in that part of town. And um, on that 600 block of Bourbon was Honey G's Oriental Gift Shop. And Honey G, the owner, said that Williams used to come into her shop and once purchased paper lanterns. Well, those paper lanterns, of course, we see in Streetcar Named Desire and that moment in the play where Blanche goes out to, to a little shop um, and she, she mentions that it's an oriental shop and she brings back a paper lantern to cover the exposed light bulb in Stanley and Stella's apartment because she can't bear to be seen in exposed light. My gosh, look at that. I mean, all they say, all writing is autobiographical to some extent, isn't it? And I mean, mm-hmm. I suppose that's what he was doing. He was drawing everything that made its way into his plays from what he saw directly outside his doors. Absolutely, yeah. Whether he he realized it at the time or not, though, being such a kind of sharp, discerning individual and always looking at people and experiences, I imagine that that he did. He was taking some mental notes there. Yeah, yeah, he was an observer. Anything else from that period make it into Streetcar Named Desire? Mm, Yeah, so um, there's one relationship he had in particular that um, we believe is probably the template for the character of Stanley Kowalski. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. So um, Williams, you know, I've mentioned in passing that he'd seduced some sailors. He had that, that borderline intimate he references from the athletic club. Um, but he doesn't have a lot of really like solid long-term relationships throughout his life. But he does have a few. And one of them is with a gentleman named Pancho Rodriguez y Gonzalez, who um, he met in New Orleans. He was a working class New Orleans guy. And um, he's believed to have been that inspiration for Stanley. Um, And Mark Cave noted to me, and I I think it's important that I note here as well, um, that that both of these locations that he lived. So at that spot um, that I mentioned right behind St. Louis Cathedral, as well as the spot that he's living at the end of 1946, which is with Poncho when he moves to 632 and a half St. Peter, both of these spots you would have been able to hear 
that streetcar and see that streetcar going down the tracks on Orleans Avenue. See, that's something that I was not aware of. I, I mean, I guess I was dimly aware of it, but I didn't actually know until I saw the picture which appeared in the article that we ran in the magazine. That picture, which I guess came from the Historic New Orleans collection. It did, yeah, correct, thanks to them. That there was, of course, a streetcar named Desire, which was, I guess, the name of the route I guess it went to, do you know what the route of that streetcar was? Admittedly, I don't really. Um, and, and, you know, we presume it probably went to a, a cross street, you know, that Desire was one of one of the intersections of. Of course. Um, yeah. But we do. We've got that great image of that streetcar with Desire literally on the front of it. And right. it's no surprise that that stuck as an image in his head no that he wanted kidding. to utilize. Right. I mean, thank goodness it wasn't just called Main Street or something. You know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> yeah, a, right. A streetcar named Main Street still wouldn't have worked out. Uh, but anyway. Go not, on. Not quite as poetic, but not anyway. Quite as poetic. So tell us so, about Pancho. Yeah, so uh, Tennessee, of course, he meets Pancho in New Orleans, and and Pancho, it seems, never quite fits in with William's more literary friends, um, which seems to kind of breed some resentment among the two. And we see Williams reference this in some of his his letters and his journals. And we can also gather that there were at least at some points accusations of infidelity um, based on Williams writing things like, and I quote, Pancho and I made up after another silly misunderstanding. He thinks I have other boys. Alas, I barely have energy for one, <laughs> which which I think is just kind of a hilarious um, way to, to deny, you know, that you're seeing anybody else. And also, yeah, makes some sense there. But um, uh, Dylan Jordan from the HNOC also mentioned um, – an incident when Williams and Gonzalez had traveled up to Nantucket, I believe, and they were doing a little stint up there. And Williams also really loved um, Provincetown, Rhode Island, we know, as well as Nantucket. You know, a couple of these sort of interesting little um, kind of uh, seaside towns up in the northeast. Yeah, he, he, resort places. Yeah, yeah, he does have an affinity for some of those spots, too. And that's why we see a Tennessee Williams Festival up in Provincetown. It's, it's also wonderful. Um, but I, I believe it was up in Nantucket that they were visiting when they get in this big blowout fight. And it resulted, allegedly, in Gonzalez shattering all of the light bulbs in the place they were staying. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Well, in Streetcar Named Desire, um, Stella tells Blanche about an episode that Stanley had where he broke all of the light bulbs in their apartment after a fight, saying, actually, I was sort of thrilled by it. Um, and we do think that's most likely a yeah. reference to that fight with Poncho that he had. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That really found its way in, didn't it? It sure did. Yeah. Um, and, and right after the two finally break up in 1947, Williams wrote in a journal, it looks like P and I may have reached the hour of parting. He has been increasingly temperamental. He quit his job, is crazily capricious. I still care for him, but right now I feel a hunger for peace above all else. Poker, poker night finished. A relative success. Not pleasant, but well done. I think it will make good theater, though its success is far from assured. Well, since he was talking about the play A Streetcar Named Desire, I'd say... The success of that play is pretty well assured now, wouldn't you? I would certainly say so, absolutely. But I love, you know, just the modesty. I think as, as people who write in any capacity, we could probably both relate to that a little bit. Being like, I wrote this thing. I don't know if it's any good or not. Yeah. It probably won't do very well. And, of course, in this case, it ended up being one of the greatest hits of all American theater and cinema. No writer should figure out every day how to decide whether to compare their own success by comparing themselves to Tennessee Williams. I think that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, that was really stupid on my part. You know, <laughs> we'll probably never get to that point, but it is definitely a relatable feeling that I have no idea if this is any good. <laughs> 
So, Alex, why do you think it is that Tennessee Williams plays are so enduring? Uh, truthfully, um, I think that it's largely because Williams has such an eye and a knack for capturing honestly the very same things that made him love New Orleans as much as he did. Um, it's it's roughness, it's complexity, it's very raw and real humanity that is constantly on display in different capacities. Um, he had a really keen eye um, for people and a keen sense of people and personalities and their yearnings and their pride and how the places they lived or didn't live impacted their behavior. I think he saw all of that on display and even concentrated in New Orleans, and he drew so much inspiration from that. Wow. Well, look, your last paragraph for this piece really speaks to the sentiment that you've described. So uh, do you mind if I give it a read? Please. I think it's worth reading in its entirety. Sure. Thanks. Well, here goes. Williams's work is beautiful in the same way that New Orleans is beautiful, sensitive, complex, gritty and perfectly imperfect. The French quarter offered Williams an old-world beauty tempered with seediness and flaws, reminiscent of his characters like Blanche and Catherine. Williams' plays offer audiences no sterilized sets or sugar-coated love stories. Instead, they depict the world as he saw it truly, a place that is simultaneously rough and awful, with sincere and striking moments of humanity and loveliness piercing through. That dynamic world of William's imagination, which continues to endure and captivate audiences and readers across the globe today, was born of his experiences in the French Quarter. The Crescent City left an indelible mark on Williams and his literature, and in turn, the cultural landscape of New Orleans, even today, more than 75 years later, remains undeniably richer for Williams, having once chosen it for his home. Thank you, James. You made that sound much better than I did. I did not. Just read your <laughs> words, Alex. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the accent helps a lot. But I do think that um, is so true, you know, between the Literary Festival and the Tennessee Williams Theatre Company of New Orleans and all of the continued productions of his plays and the scholarship and exhibitions and just sort of the essence of him that lives on in the city. He really lives on in New Orleans in a very real way. Well, Alex? Thank you very much, both for writing this piece and for coming on the show today to talk about it. Of course. Any excuse to gush about Tennessee Williams. Thanks, as always, for having me. Alex Cannon's piece, Tennessee in New Orleans, appears in the May 2022 edition of Country Roads magazine. You can find it and much more of our coverage of Louisiana's literary and cultural heritage on our website at countryroadsmag.com. There's also a link to the story and links to the historic New Orleans collections backstage at a streetcar named Desire Exhibition and other Tennessee Williams resources at the show notes of this episode. Thanks for listening to Detours, a podcast from your friends at Country Roads Magazine, the magazine for adventures close to home. Until next time, I've been James Fox Smith reminding you that in Louisiana, there's always more to discover, if only you know where to look. I hope we see you soon. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, and if you're still with us at this point, we're going to assume that you do. Please subscribe to Detours, give us a rating, and maybe even send it to a friend. And if you're not already reading Country Roads magazine, you probably should be. To read online, find a copy, or subscribe to have the monthly issues delivered to your door, visit countryroadsmag.com. Detours is written, presented, and produced by us, the editorial team at Country Roads magazine. 
James Fox Smith, Jordan Lahey Fontenot, and Alexandra Kenner. Our theme music was written and recorded by Bill Daniel and Sam Shaheen of Naughty Professor and produced by Bill Daniel at Wild Child Studios in New Orleans. The Detours logo and other associated artwork was created by Country Roads Magazine's creative director, Courtney Zimmerman. And the audio editing for this season was done by me, Jordan Lahey-Fontenot, with the help from Alexandra Kinnan and Sam Shaheen. We'd also like to thank the East Baton Rouge Parish Library's River Center branch, particularly Wesley Morgan, for allowing us to utilize the recording studio in their maker's space to record several episodes for this first season and for helping us along the way. So, until our next detour, don't be a stranger. You can always reach us at detours at countryroadsmag.com. And thanks for listening.